Uh, today, uh, we begin a new sermon series in the New Testament book of Philippians. And we're going to begin this series maybe a little differently. Instead of being in the book of Philippians, we're going to go outside the book itself and be in the New Testament book of Acts, which kind of tells us how the church in Philippi began. And so if you've got a device or you've got a Bible, if you want to swipe or turn there, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. We will eventually get to Acts cha- or Philippians chapter 1. Um, But these verses and acts provide us some context as we begin in this journey through this book. This morning I'm going to talk a little bit about, I'm going to use the phrase church planting. If you're not familiar with that phrase, it simply means uh, the beginning of a church. So where there was no building, no money, no people, a church has been formed and gathered. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about church planting So we're going to take Acts 16 in kind of some chunks this morning. So I'll read, and then we'll talk, and then I'll read, and then we'll talk a bit more. So Acts 16, verses 11 and 12 to begin. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Okay, so this gives us just a little bit of context as we begin here. And so when it talks about we here, the we that's being talked about in these verses is referring to a number of individuals who are kind of well known within the New Testament. Their names are Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And for the sake of time and what we're doing this morning, I'm not going to go into deep context about these men, but they are well known within the New Testament. Luke was the author of Acts. Timothy was handpicked by Paul, and he had a couple of New Testament letters that were written to him from Paul. But it says that these men came to Philippi. And we must note the description that's given here. They came to Philippi, which was a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So let's talk just briefly about what is meant here, especially with the Roman colony. So Philippi was located in modern-day Greece. And it was a Roman colony, which meant that they sought to be essentially a mini-Rome in every way. So, Rome was known for many things. A couple of the things that they were known for was, uh, they were known for uh, their sprawling land coverage. The, the way in which they had uh, overtaken many other nations and peoples. They also excelled in engineering. They excelled in institutional structures of many varieties. They were also known for cruelty and violence. Now, Philippi was strongly influenced by an influx of Roman soldiers. And so, naturally, in this city, there was a strong um, nationalistic presence within Philippi. So, even for us today, here in the 21st century, what's contained within the pages of this letter, written to Philippi many years ago, it has much to say to us, because we live in a context and in a country here and now, today, that has a unique form of nationalism being developed as well. And so, 
there is plenty of things in that context and many other contexts that it has to speak to us today. All right, Philippi also had a really crucial location. Though it wasn't one of the largest cities within the Roman Empire, it was located along the Via Ignatia. Okay, so the Via Ignatia was a military road that provided travel across the whole of the Roman Empire. Now, Philippi was located near water. And so this was convenient because there was a major source of trade that was occurring through Philippi. So lots of things coming, lots of things going as well in and through Philippi. And so it was a small city, relatively speaking, but it was cosmopolitan as well. It was influential. There was a lot of people coming and going. So it's not a surprise that Paul wanted to plant a church here. Because he wanted the gospel to be traded. He wanted people to encounter the gospel when they came to the city, but then also for the gospel to go out, to be sent from this city. Okay, so a little bit of context about Philippi. Let's jump here now to a few more verses as Acts 16 moves along. And on the Sabbath day... We went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, so Paul and friends are heading outside the city limits to, it says, they're finding this place of prayer. Now this highlights some of the strong Roman influence within Philippi. So typically in a city... A Jewish synagogue or a Jewish place of worship would be instituted if there was ten males in that city. And so this suggests to us that the Jewish influence in Philippi is basically little to none. There wasn't even a synagogue for them to go to. And, and this is what Paul would typically do. He would go to a city, he would find the synagogue, he would go and he would preach, he would interact with people there. But now he's going outside of the city. So Paul's group comes to this place of prayer, and he meets with women. And this is remarkable in its own way. Paul isn't going to the influential in that day. He's going to those who are viewed culturally as second-class citizens, women. And so the planting of this church is beginning with women. Now, one of the women that we learn learn about here is named Lydia. Lydia, it says, is a worshiper of God. But it's clear that something profound happened in her interaction with Paul. It says that, based on what happened, that she marked this experience with baptism. So baptism is an outward expression that displays that faith in Jesus has been birthed in someone's heart. And so this then is the groundwork for the church in Philippi. This is the first interaction we're learning about. Paul comes to this place of prayer outside of the city, and he gathers with these women. 
Now, one thing that's notable here is the willingness of Lydia to receive what Paul is speaking. Many people hear the gospel and they dismiss it. They reject it, right? They say, I don't need that. I I don't like what it says, this idea that I'm a sinner. I don't like that. And so many people, when they hear the gospel, they reject it. But what becomes really clear about Lydia's reception of the gospel is what allowed for it to happen. It said that the Lord opened her heart. So it wasn't because she'd come to this place of prayer so consistently, over and over, and God looked on her and said, oh, I want her on my team. Nor was it because she was wealthy, which is what many scholars believe about Lydia. But it was simply God's kindness to her. He came to her. He pursued her. He opened her heart up to the gospel. And and this is what we see over and over in the Bible. This is how people are saved. No one's saved because they climb a ladder to God. God comes to us. He comes down the ladder and he becomes like us. He pursues us. He softens our hearts and he opens our hearts to the beauty of the gospel. So the planning of the church in Philippi begins with this humble group of women in a quiet outpost. All right, but there's more. Acts 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, so one thing that we see here is that Paul and Silas had stayed around Philippi and that they had continued to go to this place of prayer. It wasn't just a one-time thing, but they daily were going back to this place of prayer to meet with these women and others who were being gathered there. So they had likely done this on a normal course, as a normal course on many days. But this day was different. Satan, through this slave girl, picked a fight he wasn't prepared for. And we're introduced to this slave girl. Her enslavement, when it talks about her being a slave girl, this is describing her reality in a number of different ways. She was the slave to her owners. So she was required to do the work that her owners told her, made her do. So... Clearly, we see physical enslavement, right? But we also see spiritual enslavement 
happening here as well. She was possessed by an evil spirit that was utilized by her owners for their own sordid, selfish, personal gain. And so this girl, at the behest of her owners, kept coming to Paul and to Silas. She followed them. And what she was saying was true. Maybe even helpful in some sense which I think really speaks to the power of God in all situations, even in this scenario where this woman has this evil spirit within her. God is still accomplishing his good work. He's still speaking truth. But it's likely there were other things said by this slave girl and that there was this general disruption that was occurring as they went about to this place of prayer. Now, eventually... It says that Paul became greatly annoyed. When I was reading this, this just really stood out to me. Uh, Because in one sense, it can be confounding that Paul is acting out of annoyance here instead of love, right? Like when, when we understand the gospel, we understand like God is a God of grace. He is one who loves us sacrificially. And so when we read that Paul is acting, living, responding out of great annoyance, it, it should catch our attention. It's likely that this, his annoyance stems from the fact that this evil spirit is seeking to appear as a partner of Paul. To selfishly gain followers or, or to just in some other selfish way. So what we see then happening, and specific to Paul's annoyance, is Paul speaks directly to the evil spirit. Right? So, so it's easy to read he's annoyed with this girl. Right? But what the text is communicating is ultimately his annoyance is with this evil spirit. And so he speaks directly to the evil spirit and he casts it out. Now, as the story goes on, we hear nothing else of this slave girl. It's almost as though that, that's the end of the story. But I would not be surprised, based on the fact that this story is located here, within the context of the church in Philippi being planted, that this girl was welcomed in by Lydia and the other women, and that the slave girl, in her newfound freedom, became a thriving part of the church in Philippi. Now the story as it goes on focuses on the owners of this girl. What they saw is that they saw that their hope of gain was gone. And so they're going to retaliate. And so Paul and Silas are dragged into the city and accusations are made against them. They're derogatorily referred to as Jews. They are severely beaten and ultimately then they are thrown into prison. But not just any part of the prison. They're put in the inner part of the prison. They're thrown into the most secure part of the prison. And the guard is told, guard them safely, meaning don't let anything happen to them. And so we read that they were locked up in stocks. So they're secure there. What we find biblically is that some people hear the gospel and they receive it, like Lydia. Other people hear the gospel and they reject it. This is normal. As we think about our friends, as we think about our co-workers and our neighbors, we can know that some people are going to receive the gospel and other people are going to reject the gospel. 
But the reality is no one can reject what they don't hear. Right? No one can reject what they don't hear. Michael Jordan, the, the great basketball player, uh, talked about he, he, any shot that he would take or he wouldn't take, he can't miss that, right? You can only miss a shot that you take. So he wanted to take the shots. Same thing for us as we think about the gospel. We should want to give people at least the opportunity to reject it, to share with them. And Paul and Silas understood the risks that they were exposing themselves to. People hearing the gospel was more urgent to them than their own personal suffering. Than them ending up in stocks in a prison. Okay, the story continues. All right, Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. So Paul and Silas sat in the darkness in the middle of the prison. They were shackled, yet they were singing. They were prisoners, and yet they were praying. As their circumstances worsened, their cry for Jesus increased. I think this is oftentimes contrary to how we often think. Some of us, when things get bad, we we run to Jesus. Other times, we just get so focused on trying to fix the situation. When bad things happen, sometimes maybe we hide as well. I don't want to be a burden to others. I don't want others to see my pain, to see me cry. But Paul and Silas, that's not how they function. Their affection for Jesus, their cry for help, roared all the more in the midst of their difficulty. And notice this. As they were crying out to God, the prisoners were listening to them. Those who were around them were observing. They were listening to what they were saying. And notice the form their listening took. It resulted in none of those prisoners leaving the jail when given the opportunity. So all the doors were open. Everything had fallen. All the shackles had fallen off. And none of them left. 
These prisoners saw something in Paul and Silas that captivated them. They heard in their prayers and their songs something that drew them in, that, that caused them to want to stay near to them. What they heard with their ears somehow, some way, began to move down into their hearts. And they were listening. They were listening closely. And this, this speaks to us here and now as we read about all these prisoners and the way in which they're observing, they're listening. It speaks to our reality today as well. People are watching us. People are watching you. They're watching how we respond in certain situations. They're watching how we suffer. I I was thinking about this even as the... um, the school district reached out and, and talked about masks, right? Like, they're watching us, how we interact with this mandate. Will we complain? Will we push back? Will we respect? Will we have a meaningful, respectful conversation with them about this? People are always watching us. So it causes us to wrestle with some questions ourselves. Like in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering, where do you turn? What are you crying out for? Who or what are you singing about? Or are you praying to? In our suffering, when we feel the pangs of suffering, Do we see how Jesus became the victim for us? How he suffered in the greatest way so that we could have freedom? Our lives are telling a story. Whether we acknowledge it or not, they're telling a story. The prisoners were watching and listening to Paul and Silas, and their lives were profoundly impacted. They were physical prisoners. Right? But there was also spiritual imprisonment that was going on within this jail. This is seen in the jailer. When he became aware of the fact the prison was no longer secure, he became aware, he knew that his failure to guard those prisoners safely would lead to a fate of death. That's what would happen to him. If these prisoners escaped, his life was done. So he intended to kill himself. He pulls the sword, and that's what he's going to do. But Paul stops him. You've got to understand what Paul's doing here, right? Paul's stopping his tormentor, his jailer, from killing himself. How often for us, when the person who's hurt us finds himself in that position, do we want them to get what we think they deserve? Right? But Paul's urgent. He stops him. He says, don't do that. And in that moment, the jailer is confronted by grace. And this provokes a word that maybe we don't want to hear, but as your pastor, I've got I've to share it. Who is your enemy? Who has 
mistreated you or who is mistreating you even now? Who has harmed you? Whether they know it or not, who has harmed you? Or who don't you like? Though the political discourse in our country would suggest otherwise, there's no allowance for us to hate others. Not as people who've been changed by the gospel, who've encountered the good news of Jesus. The call is not for us to withhold good from those we have a grudge against. The call for us, the call for Jesus' church, for the church in Philippi. There's a reason this is happening at the beginning of this church. The call is for them to extend grace. Not to hold grudges. Not to be bitter. Not to exact revenge. But to extend grace. Now, quick disclaimer. This doesn't speak to people who are in situations of, like, marital abuse, right? Like, this doesn't speak to those kinds of situations. So, I want to say, like, people in a situation of abuse, this isn't speaking to that, where, where it would be right for them to go to an authority or to expose this kind of thing. So, I want to just acknowledge that disclaimer. But many of us have been hurt in ways. We've been hurt by coworkers. We've been hurt by our family. We've been hurt by the person driving next to us on the road. We've been hurt by friends. We've been hurt in endless number of ways. And the gospel calls us to give to others what Jesus has given to us, which is grace. So, in order for this to happen, like, the gospel must grab hold of us, right? Because this is impossible for us to do on our own. None of us wakes up and has this capacity or the strength to extend tons of grace to people in a day. We must first understand how Jesus has extended grace to us. This is the key, the foundation for us to be able to do this. Okay, I want to talk here uh, briefly about the divine perspective here, and I kind of quickly acknowledged this earlier. But Paul and Silas' discomfort was less important than the jailer's salvation. So this doesn't mean that God didn't care about their plight. It doesn't mean that God didn't care about their suffering, what they were going through. But he utilized their suffering to accomplish, to accomplish an unthinkably good end. So in a sense, their suffering took on more meaning, right? That this was occurring in the midst of their suffering. And this is true for Christians. People who are believing the gospel, God promises to take any hard thing, any brutal thing, any suffering, and to use it for our good or for the good of others if we will trust Him. So this reality, this divine perspective that Paul and Silas' discomfort was less important than the jailer's salvation, this is meaningful as we think about how God builds his church. Because that's what he's doing in Philippi. 
God is building his church. And the same for us as we consider how Jesus' church will be built in our own local context. It will involve our suffering. It will involve us taking some shots, us hurting. It's just part of the dynamic. But God promises to take those sufferings, to take those hardships, and to use them for our good and for the good of others. Maybe we don't get to see it. Maybe we don't understand. And this is how we entrust ourselves to God's promise, to his goodness. Okay, did you notice then what was required of the jailer to be saved? It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now we know that belief leads to a way of life. Belief is going to shape how we live. It's going to shape what we do for sure. But belief is the only requirement for salvation. So think of all the things that aren't included here in this moment. Paul, Paul's not giving the jailer sarcasm, right? Well, if you could just do your job a little bit better, then you could be saved. None of that. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no list of these are the things that you need to do, jailer. There's no eye roll. There's no chuckle. There's no mocking. There's nothing. Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the beauty of salvation. It's simple in many respects. Belief. Think for a moment then about how what's happening here is a reverberation of Jesus' resurrection. These prisoners are being set free from their tomb-like existence, physically and spiritually. But the spiritual is forming the physical. The spiritual is driving the physical. The, the spiritual reality of the gospel invading is changing the physical reality. And so in the dark part of this prison, light is invading. And I wonder if in all of this, Paul is reminded of his own life. This jailer, who was his persecutor, is the one who ultimately walks Paul out of this prison. And similarly, Paul was spending his own life persecuting Christians. Until God, God grabbed hold of him and began to utilize him to set others free from their imprisonment to sin. And in this we see the beauty of freedom. The power of Jesus' resurrection reverberating in the everyday. And verse 33 gives this provocative picture of what the gospel does. The jailer who was part of the team that wounded Paul and Silas, now takes them and he washes those wounds that he helped inflict. And Paul then baptizes the man, symbolizing the spiritual cleansing that's occurred in the life of the jailer. This is what Jesus is beginning. This is what the church is to be about radical, drastic transformation in somebody's life. And, and this isn't happening by accident. This is happening 
on purpose. And we're going to see connections in the book of Philippians. Why this is happening in this way. Even in this little phrase, it talks about here, the jailer rejoiced. He rejoiced. And so we're going to read later in the the letter, Paul's going to call the Philippians to joy. He's going to tell them to rejoice. And they're going to be able to go back and to look at, this is how our church was formed. God coming to us and working in these miraculous ways that compelled this jailer, this man who became part of the church, to rejoice. This was the beginning of the church in Philippi. A wealthy, cultured woman, Lydia. A demon-possessed girl. A group of prisoners and their jailer. And some others we don't know of. It, it is an unlikely group of people. This ragtag group of people is how Jesus began invading the darkness with his gospel light in this city of Philippi. And Paul, at a later date, writes a letter to this church. And we're going to see how what he is writing to the church in Philippi is connected to how this church was formed. And so Paul and Timothy write, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy identify themselves as servants. They went to prison so this church could begin. They gave of themselves. In essence, they served in a profound way. But this is such a a stark description. Paul and and Timothy aren't lording anything over the church, right? They're not saying, you owe us because of what we've done. Paul's not saying that to the jailer, right? He's not saying, you need to do these things so that you can be saved, You've hurt me in this way, now undo these hurts. Not at all. They are servants. And this is really important to understand the biblical precedent for church leadership. You don't even hear the Bible talking necessarily about church leaders. The way that the Bible talks about church leaders are servants. And we we believe this strongly here at Center Church When you are in a position, a role at the church, you are a servant. That's what we are. That's what I am. I'm not up here being an authoritarian, being a dictator. I am a servant. The overseers are servants. Those on the ministry team are servants. The staff are servants. We come underneath. And we serve. We don't come over you and tell you what to do. We come underneath you and we serve you. This is so important. And then this letter is addressed to the whole of the church. And clearly there's some stability here in this church because there's structure. So it talks about there being overseers who are the spiritual leaders. And it talks about the deacons who are those who are helping to facilitate the ministry of the church. So... This is the structure of the church that's in place in Philippi. And then the stated intention of Paul and Timothy is grace and peace. There's so much contained in this greeting. First of all, peace. 
It's assurance. Assurance of God's sovereign goodness. That's the only way that we have peace. And grace is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It's what makes Christianity distinct from everything else. Undeserved favor. A unique thing about this book of Philippians is that there's not really any explicit rebuke in it. Many of Paul's letters, there's an explicit rebuke, and there really isn't one in this book. Now, we'll find that implicitly there's some stuff going on here that Paul says some things, but there's not any specific, overt rebuke that's going on in this letter. Okay, I've got three points of gospel application I, wanna, I just want to hone in on here as we close things down. So gospel application, we want to focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we're not walking out of here thinking about these are all the things I need to do. We want to be reminded this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus has done for us. First of all, church planting is a beautiful mess. So it should be natural for churches to think beyond themselves, not seek to build their own brand or empire by engaging uh, in church planting. But, but it should be natural for us to engage in church planting to seek the gospel advance. But the reality is we swim in a sea of consumerism that continually tells us life is about us, that we should get what we want when we want it. We live in a world filled with sin, and sin makes things messy. Not only that, we're dealing with our own sin. Not just other people's sin, we're dealing with our own sin. And people come and bring stories that are quite messy. And what makes things even worse then is that we all try to hide our mess. And that only makes things worse. Yet, God still works and woos people to himself. And this mess hopefully gets exposed and then gets turned upside down as people are slapped in the face by the beauty of the gospel and their hearts melt by Jesus' sacrificial love for others. And the gates of hell are stormed and beauty appears in the midst of the most unexpected places through suffering, in hardship. Beauty appears to people who don't deserve it who've done nothing that would garner. The gospel creates beauty. And so Jesus, what we see throughout the New Testament, is he's seeking to plant churches, to establish gospel outposts throughout cities, throughout the countryside. And here at Center Church, we want to be involved in that. We want to be involved in church planting. And we only want to increase our involvement in seeing the gospel advance. This is the primary way by which God allows people to be confronted with his good news. is through his church, through planting of churches, and then his people being sent within their local context, within their work context, so that people can encounter the gospel. So... We want to be engaged in this, but we also understand it's really messy. But we do this, we engage in this because we believe God's promises that he'll take the messiness and he'll turn it into something beautiful.
Secondly, grace and peace. This is how the letter begins. The invitation into the Christian life and throughout the Christian faith is grace and peace. Grace for your failings. And we all have many of them. Peace in troubles. And we all have many troubles. And the only way this can be a reality is for a God who is perfect in power and goodness to extend these gifts to us. So I want to encourage us not to just read over these words in a trite manner. Grace and peace are cornerstone aspects of the Christian faith. There's not another religion that conceives of grace. Every other religion is conceived of law. Do this and the deity will be pleased with you. No other religion talks about grace. So there's no other philosophy, no other religion, no other commentator who's going to offer grace or is going to offer lasting peace. Peace is hard to find. I I mean, walk into Barnes & Noble, right? And every single year, there's a a, a new deluge of self-help books. Why didn't last year's fix the problem? Why didn't it provide the true and lasting peace that we were looking for? Because we're looking in the wrong place. Peace is only found in and through Jesus Christ. So Paul and Timothy are writing this specifically, extending grace and peace because everything else they're going to write in the letter is intended to convey grace and peace to the readers. Lastly, as the prison was being shaken, it read in Acts 16, the foundations of the prison were shaken. This should resonate with those of us who are Christians today. The foundations of sin and the imprisonment it brings has been shaken. As Jesus died on the cross, an earthquake shook that region, and in that moment, sin's curse was broken. Now, for whatever reason, we tend to let the foundations of our faith be shaken in the everyday. Instead of letting the foundations of sin in our hearts be shaken, we oftentimes don't look at Jesus. We feel sorry for ourselves. We focus on our failures and everything that's wrong in this world. But what happened in Acts 16 was a reverberation of what happened on the cross. And that's still reverberating today as well. The foundations of evil have been shaken. Satan has been defeated. And so we can live lives, knowing grace has been extended to us, we can live lives filled with peace.